be seated. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 16 in it. We get to the rich man in Lazarus parable. The rich man in Lazarus. Let's get this out of the way even before I read it. Is it a parable? Let me assume that you're familiar with the story. It's, it's pretty much common even in, I suppose, secular culture. People have heard about this parable, this story. Maybe you don't know whether it's a parable or not, whether it's a real story, a historical account or a parable. A few in church history have argued that it's not a parable, but it's a real historical account. John Calvin, a little bit after John Calvin was J.C. Ryle and others. But to my, to my knowledge, no modern scholar would say that this isn't a parable. Almost everyone thinks that this is a parable. Now, yeah, it's true that Jesus doesn't anywhere else use a personal name in a parable. That might tell us that this isn't a parable, but a real historical account. But, but that shouldn't mean that he couldn't use a personal name in a parable, even if this is the only time. And as we'll talk about at the end of the message, there's, I think, some real purpose for the name Lazarus. Notice also, just as you look through your Bible here before we even read it, the passage appears in a collection of parables on money, lostness, and reversal from Luke 15 to Luke 16. There are five parables. You know, the lost coin, uh, the, the, the lost son, the prodigal son. Each of these parables begin with the same phrase in the Greek. In, in the English, it goes like this. There was a, so there was a woman with a coin. There was a man with two sons. And then you get to this last one here, verse 19. There was a rich man. So it sounds like this is a parable. Another reason to think it's a parable is that, as we'll see, it's not a literal picture of heaven and hell. As we'll see, the rich man is yelling from hell up to heaven. A conversation is taking place between heaven and hell. And that kind of thing can't be found anywhere else in Scripture. It doesn't mean that it's describing torment in hell in a way that isn't real so that we should conclude that hell isn't real or that the pain of hell isn't real. No, no, no. We know from other passages of Scripture, hell is real. The pain of hell is real. But we don't see anywhere else in Scripture that communication between heaven and hell takes place. People from hell can yell up to heaven and say, Hey, Abraham, help me out down here. So it's parabolic. It's, it's kind of symbolic language. It's not a literal picture of heaven and hell. But it really doesn't matter because whether it's a parable or a true story, the point of the teaching is the same either way. Let's read it. Verse 19. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he's being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, 
If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. I notice that phrase in verse 26, a great chasm. A great separation between heaven and hell, and hence a great separation between the rich man and Lazarus. But it's not just a great separation between the rich man and Lazarus after death. There's a great separation between the rich man and Lazarus before death. Even though they're in close proximity, close geography, even though the the poor man, Lazarus, is basically right there on his doorstep. They're worlds apart. That reminds us that Jesus often paints in very stark colors, in extremes, not in shades of gray. He speaks of poor and rich, of saved and lost. He speaks of heaven and hell. He speaks of peace and torment. And and we need that, in our culture especially, that is so nuanced, that is so into shades of gray. Jesus shakes that up because in the end, there will be heaven and hell. There is now those who are his and those, he said, who are against him. There's a great chasm. I want to show you four parts to the parable and then outside of the notes you have in your bulletin, I want to show you four more points of uh, analysis and application, we could say. First, four parts to the parable. And the first is a contrast of circumstances in this life, verses 19 to 21. It starts with a description of the rich man in verse 19. He has expensive clothes. You see it with the color purple being used here. Purple was expensive because in those days, well, they didn't mass manufacture things. They didn't mass dye things. You didn't go to the store if you wanted to dye something a certain color and get your your little dye kit dye your fabric. You, you had to look in creation for something of that color, get that color, and put it into the fabric. And certain colors were harder to put into fabric. Purple was the hardest. It was very expensive. When it says fine linen here in verse 19, it's referring to his underwear, in case you wanted to know. <laughs> Even his underwear was fancy. It was soft. It was gentle. It was expensive. Now, if we're going to talk about things in our day that are expensive and luxurious regarding our clothes, we have to use name brands. Color doesn't cut it. You know, if I said, I got a red sweater, that means nothing to you. But we talk about this purse being that name brand, these jeans being this name brand, and it means money, dollar signs, For them, it was purple and fine linen, and he wore the finest, most expensive clothes habitually in the New American Standard. Habitually is the word used. That's the the right translation. Every day. It was fancy day every day. It was dress-up day every day. It was expensive food day every day. Lots of food, all the time. There was no such thing as a special meal because every meal was special. There was no such thing as a party because every meal was a party for this guy. Constant pleasure. The ESV has sumptuous living every day. This is simply a short list to describe luxurious living to the hilt, extravagance, even his gait is a word used here not to just describe any gate, but fancy gates, the gates of kings, the gates of palaces. This is like a, a, a mini Ecclesiastes, if you're familiar with that book of the Old Testament. But look at verse 20. At this fancy gate was laid a poor man covered in sores. Now, this gate wouldn't be the front door like we have uh, so often in our Spanish architecture around town. It would be a gate that led to a courtyard, which then eventually leads to a front door. And Lazarus was laid there, which means he was probably lame, couldn't walk. Which means that people are carrying him to the gate, perhaps quite poor themselves, but they're in in better physical health than Lazarus. They can't feed Lazarus, they don't have the money for that, they don't have the food for it, but at least they can get him to the place where there's a chance where he can get some food. What kind of food? 
Verse 21, the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. The crumbs, these are probably the scraps intended for the dogs, which are also mentioned in verse 21. Now, dogs in first century times are more wild than our domesticated dogs, our lap dogs, our in-house dogs today. But here's what I think is going on if I understand the first century context from the books I was looking at this week. Wealthy homes would throw their scraps to the gate for the dogs to come in and eat. And as they would do it, the, guard, the dogs would essentially serve as guard dogs. You would have these dogs who would come and eat, and they didn't realize that they were protecting the house, the people in the house. They were protecting the food that was at the gate. And so the people would feed the dog, but just the scraps, I mean, just the nasties that are left over. And as they would feed these dogs, the dogs would stick around. That's where Lazarus is going for food. And because he goes there every day, the dogs are used to it. And so the dogs know how this goes. Lazarus gets some. The point is this. Lazarus just hopes to get the dog food. Just whatever the rich guy throws to the dogs at the gate to keep the dogs there. And then look at the second half of verse 21 where it says, Even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. At first this sounds like the dogs were adding insult to injury, right? It sounds like, man, he's just trying to get a meal. All he can get is dog food. And after the dogs are done eating whatever they can, they won't leave him alone. They, they lick his sores. He's trying to shoo them away and they won't go away. No. The Greek here has a, a, a word that's so important in every translation. It seems to get it wrong. When it says, even the dogs were licking his sores, the word that's wrong is even. It should be but. Greek word Allah. But the dogs were licking his sores. It's a contrast. So the flow goes like this. He was laid at the gate to just get the crumbs that fell from the table, just to get the dog food. But the dogs licked his sores. The rich man didn't care for him, but the dogs did. The rich man didn't care, but there's a contrast. The dogs did care. Dogs lick sores because licking heals. They know this scientifically, that dog saliva has something in it that heals wounds. That's why your dog obsessively licks. You shouldn't bite the wound. That's why you need the cone of shame around his head when he, <laughs> when he gets the boo-boo. But, but they lick... Because the saliva has something in it that heals the wound. They licked the sores because they cared for them. So it's no small point in the story, and it turns on just one word here. <laughs> Isn't God's word so wonderful? He spires it down to the word. But, but the dogs licked his wounds. Dogs have no awareness of wealth. Dogs have no awareness of the hierarchy of society and wealth. Even in our culture today, so often you see a homeless guy and what's right there along with him? Shopping cart, maybe, but a dog. A dog. Man's best friend. And you don't see these dogs trying to trade up. You know? You don't see him hitchhiking when Lexuses go by. Well, remember, like I said, in first century times, dogs were even less domesticated than they are today. So even the dogs of this first century parable had enough sense, enough care to lick the sores of Lazarus. Jesus is saying that the rich man in this story, in God's economy, is dumber than a dog. Dogs have enough sense to care for someone like this. Not the rich man. Secondly, we see in the story a reversal of circumstances in the next life. A reversal of circumstances. They both died. No description of how or when. It doesn't matter. It just reminds us that death is inevitable. It reminds us that death is no respecter of persons. The rich and the poor, they both die. Neither had control of how. 
neither had control of when, neither could prevent their death. They simply died. And at death, there was a monumental fork in the road. Oh, there was probably a funeral. And though it's not really recorded here, we can imagine that their funeral was just like their life. For the rich guy, it's a big funeral. It's lots of friends. It's his servants coming out in droves. It's the last task they have that he's given them to do. Lazarus's funeral was probably like that of any homeless person. His body showed up the morgue. And maybe a few friends huddled around a fiery barrel to share a couple of memories and say a prayer. But after death, there's complete reversal. It's ironic reversal through the whole story. You see, the rich man's pleasure turns to suffering. Remember, even his underwear was soft and gentle and fancy, whereas Lazarus' body was filled with sores. Now, the rich man finds himself tormented by fire. The rich man's lavished partying, no doubt surrounded by friends and servants, turns not only to loneliness, but even helplessness. No servants now. There's no one even to bring him literally a drop of water. He went from gorging himself to now wishing for just a drop. Lazarus' companions were before just dogs. And now... Lazarus' companions are nothing short of, oh, for one, Father Abraham. Verse 22, he was carried by angels to Father Abraham's bosom. Now, what's this mean, Abraham's bosom? Maybe you've been around the Bible enough that you don't even flinch when you hear Abraham's bosom. If you haven't been around the Bible much and you hear Abraham's bosom, you, what? Abraham's bosom? Is that really what it said? What does it mean? Some translations say Abraham's side. Well, this isn't just another name for heaven. This isn't just like a, an AKA, heaven, also known as Abraham's bosom, like it's a street name or something. It's talking about heaven for sure, but it's a word picture, and a word picture of a meal. You have to understand how they'd eat in these days. You know they didn't sit in chairs. They also didn't sit on their knees like you might see in Asian cultures today, might see in TV. They, they leaned on their side. It was a hip down, and it was an elbow down. And then as they're leaning down on one side, there was a community bowl, and so they're scooping from this one bowl with the, with the right hand leaning on their left. One guy was kind of the, the host, the most important person there. In this case, it's Abraham. The person to his right, though, is usually the guest of honor, the second most important person there, at the right hand. And at the right hand, this person would be leaning there toward the person who was the, the person of the host, most important person there. And as they would lean toward the host, kind of like knocked over dominoes almost, when they would converse with that person, they would lean in on and actually put their head on the chest of the host. Now, I know you try to do that at a restaurant. Two guys go to a restaurant, get one booth together, same side of the booth, and one of them puts his head on the other guy's chest. You better hope that one of them, like, elbows, you know, in the temple. What are you doing? Get off. In that culture, it was normal. This was, this was friendship. This was intimacy. You even see it in John chapter 21 with Jesus and John. Remember, John is called the, the disciple that Jesus loved. Kind of Jesus' favorite. And in John chapter 21, they're doing this seating arrangement around the table. John's leaning in on Jesus, and he goes to ask him a question. And it says, he leaned back on Jesus' bosom. I know it sounds weird for us. But for them, this is utter intimacy. 
This is Lazarus leaning in on Father Abraham. Abraham, the patriarch of patriarchs, the guy from whom all this stuff starts. You've got Adam, kind of head of creation, but you've got Abraham, the father of faith, the father of the promises, the father of the nation. And here, this man Lazarus, forgotten by society, stepped over by the rich man, is number two at the table with Abraham. What a wonderful picture. It's a story of reversal, but it's not mere reversal. This is important to note. In other words, this doesn't teach that because Lazarus patiently suffered in the life here and now, that in the next life, he'll have ease and comfort. And because the rich man had ease and comfort in this life, he'll have suffering and hardship in the next life. No, some people have that kind of theology. They believe that they've suffered enough now, so they won't go to hell. They've had their hell now, so that God won't send them to hell later, no matter what they believe, no matter what they do. That's wishful thinking, but it's not in the Bible. If this parable were the only scrap of the Bible, we might be fair to conclude that. Look at verse 25. I mean, it's almost shocking what it says here. Abraham says to the rich man, child, remember... During your life, you received your good things, likewise Lazarus' bad things, but now he's being comforted here, and you're in agony. It sounds like mere reversal. But this isn't the only bit of Bible we have. We know that that God doesn't just flip things. You were poor, you'll be rich in heaven. You were rich here on earth, you'll be poor in the next life to come. No, this passage doesn't merely elevate poverty and damn riches. Lazarus's poverty didn't earn him a spot in heaven. Now it is very clear from the parable that the rich man's riches couldn't at all save him, right? When we die, riches stay here. You don't bring them to the next and buy your way in. The rich man's riches did no good once he went to hell. But on the other hand, it wouldn't be right to conclude that the rich man's riches by themselves damned him to hell. For one, remember, Father Abraham himself was mighty rich. The guy who's head of the table, he was rich. So the truth is that Jesus doesn't exactly say why one of these guys is in hell and why the other one is in heaven. We have to conclude from elsewhere in Scripture what we know to be the gospel, what we know to be the Dividing line. Remember that Father Abraham is the father of what? Faith. He's the father of faith. We saw it last week as I read just at the end of Romans 4. Romans 4, which says Father Abraham is the father of faith, and he believed, and it was credited to him for righteousness. He didn't earn righteousness. He didn't earn God's favor. God's favor was granted as grace. Because he believed God's promises. So what we have to conclude is Lazarus believed like Abraham believed. And though the rich man probably was Jewish, maybe even religious, maybe even actively religious, he didn't really believe the promises. He didn't believe like Abraham believed. And here's what that means for the parable itself. It means... That we can see the rich man's lostness demonstrated in his use or misuse of riches. We can see that he daily lived for comfort and luxury. We can see the self-centeredness of his life in verse 19. You can see him living for simple pleasures and for that alone. You can see he's living for the now and for the now only. He's living like there's no God. He's living like God has not revealed what we're to do with the poor. He's a foil for what Jesus has been saying all along. You know that word foil? It's the opposite example. He's a perfect opposite example of everything Jesus has been saying as we've been studying Luke's gospel account. When Jesus teaches, he says, the kingdom is like this. It's It's like this, and he'll list some things, and then he'll say, it's not like this. And what he describes is basically this guy. 
this rich man. His riches were an opportunity to demonstrate that either the kingdom of man was in his heart or the kingdom of God was in his heart. And he clearly and and completely demonstrated that it's the kingdom of man that's in his heart. And, And by the way, he keeps demonstrating that even in hell. Let me show you. Do you notice that the rich man sees Abraham and Lazarus from hell? And do you notice that he recognizes Lazarus? That means that he knew Lazarus. He mentions Lazarus' name to Abraham. Abraham doesn't say, and by the way, this is Lazarus. It doesn't say in the parable, and Lazarus was wearing a sticky name tag with, you know, written in Sharpie. He knew it was Lazarus. He knew who that was. He stepped over him. He knew it was the guy at the gate. He even knew it. His name was Lazarus. For years, he just ignored it. For years, he he just pretended he wasn't there. But now, when he sees Lazarus is at Abraham's right hand, notice he doesn't ask Lazarus for help. Oh, no. He asks Abraham to send Lazarus to go get him a drink of water. You see? He still thinks that Lazarus is beneath him. He's in hell. Lazarus is in heaven. But instead of asking Lazarus, he goes up to Abraham. Abraham, could you send Lazarus to help me? He doesn't say, Lazarus, I'm sorry for what I neglected. I'm sorry that I ignored you. I'm sorry for the times I stepped over you. I'm sorry for the pain I ignored. I'm sorry that I fed you like a dog. Sorry for the fact that dogs cared for you better than I did. There's regret here, but there's not repentance here. There's pain. There's pain that he wants abated, but there is no recognition of what was wrong. Just tuck it away. There's no repentance in hell. You might think that it's just this We're sorry. We're sorry. Just let us out forever and ever. No. The flesh is still the flesh. The flesh breeds the flesh. Judgment comes to the flesh, and the flesh still resists it. You see this in Revelation as it describes the end of time. In Revelation 6, here the Lamb, Jesus, is showing up. And you'd think, finally, people know, this is it. We're doomed. Turn ourselves in. Bow before him. He really is the king. We're in trouble. Repent. Nope. What do they say? They call on the mountains and the rocks to crush them so they can hide from the lamb. They don't repent. They don't turn themselves in. They hide. They know they're in trouble, but they say, go ahead, mountain, let's just get this done. Judgment's coming, they know he's the one, and yet they don't bow. You see it in Revelation 22, as the end comes there, Jesus says, let him who is unjust be unjust still. The unjust will be unjust forever." Endeavor. There is no repentance in hell. That's not what's going on here. There's regret, but not repentance. Third, there's concern for those still living. That's the next section, verse 27 and 28. He, he does say, Father Abraham, I beg you, send Lazarus to my father's house. I've got five brothers there. They don't know what I know. But that might sound noble. And it's only horizontal. It's still not vertical. It's still concerning pain, torment. I don't want my brothers to go through this. So send Lazarus. He can't get me a drink of water. Okay, well, still send him. He's still treating Lazarus like an errand boy. See, there's no humility here. He's saying, warn my brothers to straighten up so they don't have to come here. 
Yeah, there's a concern for those who are still living, but you see, it's only about them. You, you see, there's nothing Godward here about this. It's still only about this is really painful. And I have some brothers. Notice, it's my brothers. Notice it's five. That's pretty limited if that's the scope of his compassion. Fourth, it moves to an explanation of unbelief. Not just unbelief, but there's an explanation about the relationship between miracles and scripture and belief. So in verse 28, the rich man said, Send Lazarus to my five brothers to warn them. And then verse 29, look at that. Abraham says, no, they have scripture. They have Moses and the prophets. These are Jewish guys. They have the Bible. They've heard the Bible. They go to the synagogue to read and hear the Bible read. No, they have scripture. Verse 30, the rich man says, send someone then from the dead. It doesn't have to be Lazarus. But if it's a resurrection... If it's a miracle of death to life, then they'll believe. Then they'll repent. Do you realize that the rich man here, from hell, by the way, is actually arguing with Father Abraham. He begins a sentence with, no, Father Abraham. First bad move. Second bad move. The sentence ends by subtly blaming God. He says, if my brothers would see someone back from the dead, they would believe. I know I would. I know I would have if you had only shown me. If you'd only shown me a bigger miracle, I would have believed. If you had only warned me more sternly, I would have believed. I would have repented. I would have known. If you had only been more clear, if you'd only given us something besides Moses and the prophets, Abraham has already said, no, they have Moses and the prophets. And he responds with, no, but. As if to say, that's what I had. And look where I am. Abraham replies, verse 31, even if someone rises from the dead, they won't listen. And sure enough, a little bit later in the timeline, John chapter 11, another Lazarus did rise from the dead. And some did believe. But when the officials were told that Lazarus was raised from the dead, that's when they first talked about killing Jesus. That's when they first get serious about this guy being a threat. That's when they first get very mad. Jesus rose from the dead. You you can't read that last line, even if someone rises from the dead, knowing the rest of the story without knowing. That's a foreshadow, isn't it? You know, if it was a movie, there'd be a twinkle in Jesus' eye right then. He'd look at the camera and smile. Jesus rose from the dead. And some believed. And many mocked. That's when it got really tough for the disciples, right? That's when persecution really came for the disciples. That's when martyrdom became a reality for the disciples. That's when they said, he rose. Even if one rises from the dead... They won't believe. Unbelief is so persistent. It's unbelievably persistent, isn't it? Except for the grace of God opening our blind eyes and our rebellious hearts. We would keep finding a reason to not believe forever and ever. Just like this guy. Unbelief deceives itself into thinking that if there was just more, if it only had something else it would believe, if this one thing was just cleared up, it would believe. But God doesn't owe us a supernatural show. Abraham in the story here, Jesus says, makes clear that miracles aren't the answer. And here's why. Why? 
Miracles might impress. Miracles might make us afraid. Miracles might, might incite a little bit of obedience for a while. So if Jesus ripped this roof off right now like a, like a can, and it wasn't big Jesus, you know, like he's ten times taller than this building. It's human being Jesus. He's like us. He's a, a normal guy body. And he rips the ceiling off, and you know it's him because he doesn't look white and blonde-haired and groomed beard. You, you know it. Look, it's Jewish Jesus. <laughs> if you knew it was him, and you knew he did it, and you knew it wasn't a stunt, you'd be afraid. You'd walk the straight line for a while. You'd hear this parable and you'd say okay I'll be good to the poor but here's what miracles can't do they can't tell you why he had to die they can tell you that he's God they can tell you that he's powerful they can tell you that you better straighten up they can tell you that he's coming back but they can't tell you why he had to die Moses and the prophets tell us why he had to die Sin. That's why miracles aren't good enough unless you get Moses and the prophets. If you don't get Moses and the prophets and you don't see your need for a savior, miracles might impress, miracles might make you afraid. But they won't give you a savior. They won't give you true faith. In a sense... He has spoken from the grave in this parable, right? Even though the rich man couldn't get to his brothers, couldn't send someone to his brothers, the rich man still speaks. He speaks in the word. He still speaks today. God has spoken in his son. His son was raised from the dead. God did raise his son from the dead. He's given us Moses and the prophets and the gospel writers and the epistles and the the apocalypse at the end of the book. He's given us scripture. And scripture is enough. Scripture is his primary means of revealing himself. So let me ask you, if you don't believe, quit waiting for him to do something. I know you think you have this one hang-up. But don't you know from experience that this isn't your first hang-up? This is now your ninth hang-up with Christianity. And the other ones went away or disappeared or faded into the distance. And what did you do? You moved on to a new one. You went looking for a new one. So if I can clear up this ninth one you have now, I bet you won't believe I bet you'll go on atheist.org and look up a new one. I bet you'll go on bibleproblems.com and look up a new problem. Friend, isn't that a spiritual problem, not an intellectual one? If you're going looking for the problems, it's not an intellectual one. It's a heart problem that's driving you to make an intellectual argument. You see, you don't need a miracle. And it may mean that you don't need more scientific proof. It may mean you need just the Bible to speak to you. So read, read. And some of you know it, but I ask you, what are you waiting for? Maybe you've heard this over and over. You know the gospel. What are you waiting for? What will it take for you to heed this message when heaven and hell are in the balance? All right, four things in closing here. Issues of analysis and application, you can call them. And be of good cheer, I had 11. (laughs) And they were long sentences. And so I knew you wouldn't write them down, so I narrowed them down to one word. Four words. The first is identity. Identity. Are you okay with your sole identity being the one whom God helps? Lazarus' name was the one whom God helps. That's what it means. 
that's what his name meant. That's what his identity was. The one whom God helps. Isn't it interesting that Lazarus is named in the parable and the rich man isn't? It seems like either they both should be named or neither should be named. What does it mean that the rich man isn't named? He's just a rich guy. This is, this is his identity. He's the rich guy. Maybe you grew up in a small town and there's that one rich guy. He's the guy on the hill. No one knows his name. No one needs to know his name. He's the guy in the hill. The guy with the gate. You know, the guy with the rolls. All you have to say is that phrase. That's his identity. He doesn't have a name. Who cares what his name is? He's the guy in the big house. This guy is the rich guy. And isn't it amazing that he's called the rich man all the way through the parable, even when he's in hell? Why would Jesus keep calling him the rich man when there's no way he could be conceived of being rich? You're in hell. You don't have like a bank account over in in the corner of hell, right? You, You don't have like big pockets of money in hell. You don't have a bag with you in hell filled with your stuff. How is this guy rich? What else are you going to call him? That's all he was. He's the rich man. He's a rich man who now doesn't have any riches. But Lazarus was the one whom God helps. Which means this is who he is. This is his identity. And this is what it means to be a Christian. You get to feel as though this is the sum total of your life. I need help. Oh, not just I need help to get out of this trial. I need help with the situation, sure. But you see your helplessness and neediness all over the place, first and foremost, as it relates to your sin and your fake righteousness before God. I have a feeling... Most of us in here in affluent middle-class America, suburbia right here in Vista del Norte neighborhood, most of us can probably identify a little more closely with the rich man than we can with Lazarus as far as material stuff goes. But I hope that Christians here, even in this kind of affluent society, are growing in identifying, spiritually speaking, with Lazarus. They feel more and more like one who has just been laid at the gate of Jesus. More and more like one who knows they can't walk. More and more like one who says, if the master doesn't feed me, I die. More and more like one who says, if he doesn't bring me to Abraham's bosom, the angels don't carry me there, I don't get there. My only hope is him. And by the way, that's the connection between care for the poor, which the rich man should have done, and our salvation. The poor are the physical, economic representation of what we are as Christians, spiritually. We came to Christ as beggars or we didn't come at all. That's what we sang today. We came as Lazarus's we didn't come at all. Jesus came to preach good news to the poor. Luke 4, and then he repeats it again in Luke 7. He said, the kingdom is like this. Blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom. What kind of poor are we talking about? The spiritually poor. Just like when he said, I didn't come for those who are well, I came for the sick. Not those who are physically sick. He didn't come to be a a physical physician. He came to be a spiritual physician. He came for those who know they are spiritually dead. Their need of resurrection. Jesus became poor for us. So 2 Corinthians 8 says, This is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says. Here's the definition. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, he suffered, so that through his poverty you might become rich. And by the way, we could add, 
you receive his riches through his poverty only by first recognizing your poverty. Isaiah 55. Here's the message. Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, drink. You who have no money, you who thirst, come. You who have no money, you think you can buy it. You can't come in. You don't get it. You need more Moses. You need more prophets. Are you okay with solely being the one whom God helps? Secondly, the second word here is mission. And the others will go a little faster here. Mission. God has sent us outside the gate to give and to serve and to love and to proclaim his word and to warn of judgment. And like the rich man, opportunities so often are literally at our door. The opportunity was at the rich man's gate. He had to practically trip over the, after the poor man to get out the door. What kind of Lazaruses are you stepping over right now, pretending they're not there? Maybe there are opportunities to give, opportunities to feed, opportunities to love, someone who's broken on the inside, not so much needy on the outside. Maybe it's opportunity to proclaim. But whatever it is, do it as a way of glorifying God. Remember, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And these things are tied. They're not separate things. One of the ways you love God is by loving your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Imagine yourself being doomed for hell. Imagine yourself being in need like that person's in need. What would you want to be done to you? Mission. Third word is expectations. A Christian's expectations about this life should at least partially be informed by the Lazarus part of the story. We know the Job story. We know that it went from good to bad and then back to good again. The Lazarus story is bad and it too has a good ending. But the good ending happens after he dies. You okay with that one? You okay? Will you let the Job story encourage your trial and let the Lazarus story encourage your trial? Are you okay if you die at the gate? Are you okay if the only friends are dogs? You okay if the sores never go away? Because heaven's enough? Isn't it interesting that the one in the story that's called the one God helps is the one that on earth no one would think God's helping? No one would think God's helping Lazarus. They would think, what did this guy do? And yet the guy who's rich, everyone would think, this guy's blessed. Everyone think, what did this guy do to get all this stuff? Ironic. No surprise that earlier in the chapter, Jesus says, the things that men love, God detests. By the way, here's an assignment for you. If I had more time, we would do it. Go back and read the earlier verses of this chapter in light of this parable. The parable is the exclamation mark. All that stuff we have saw in the last three weeks, last two weeks before this, is all leading up to this. You won't believe the echoes in the previous verses that are now punctuated here in the rich man and Lazarus parable. But let me say this. Riches are absolutely no indication of God's blessings on your life. Him taking them away may be the best, most life-saving thing he ever does for you. Don't forget from this parable and from the many other passages of Scripture that wealth isn't in and of itself evil or wrong, but it is dangerous. 
there is a corrupting, blinding potential to wealth. Be careful. And the last word is heaven. In light of this, heaven, we have to remember, will be far greater than any and all biblical descriptions we have. Lazarus, in the second he died, was carried by angels and carried to Abraham's bosom, which no one in here can understand. Most of us aren't Jewish, so we can't imagine what it means to be next to Abraham. And we're not first century people, so we don't at all get what it means to be on his bosom. But just know this, tuck it away, it's better than you know. Heaven will be better than you know. Not because you won't get ingrown toenails. Not because you get to see grandma who died. Not because you won't have to work anymore. Not because you won't get sick anymore. Not even because there won't be any temptation to sin and we hate sin as Christians. Oh, I like that one a lot. I think about that one a lot. But heaven will be heaven because he's there. And we see him. And we don't get how great that is yet because we haven't seen them. And the more we dig in this word for glory, the more we dig in this scripture for who he is and what he's about, the more we just get a taste. Like Job said, as he was talking about God and his ways, he says, these are the mere fringes of his ways. And Paul said, This great book is just a dim mirror, but one day we will see him. But there isn't just a heaven to come, there is, there's a hell. Friend, there's a real hell. It's forever. It's a place of torment. There's no leaving it. And partly there's no leaving it because there's no repentance there. No one says, I really, I really hate what I did and I'm sorry. I know you're the Lord and I hate, I hate that I didn't embrace the Savior who died for me. No one will say that. But for all eternity, they will justify themselves. They'll be sneaky about their regret that looks like repentance, but like this man, There'll be hues of, maybe you didn't give me enough. Maybe you're not so fair. But he has. He has given his word. He has given his son. He's raised him from the dead. Believe. And if you believe, then let's live like there is a heaven to embrace. And there is a hell to fear. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the time to soak in it. We thank you again, as we do from time to time, for a society in which we can open the word and we can say it loudly, we can yell about it, we can talk about hell. We can say that Christ and what he says is the only hope. Some won't like it, but we thank you for the privilege and the calling to say it and talk about it this morning. Lord, help us to believe. Help us who do believe to fight unbelief, to hate unrepentance. Help us, Lord, not to live for now in mere empty pleasures. Give us perspective, like Colossians 3, to know that our citizenship is in heaven and we're to think on Christ where he's seated Help us to know that we have that position of the heavenlies and the hope of being with him someday because and only because of his blood, which was shed for us. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus who died, for people like Lazarus, for people like us, for people all over this world. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. Now let's stand up and sing about this great Jesus and his blood.
wash away my sin nothing but the blood of Jesus what can make me whole again nothing but the blood of Jesus don't precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fount I know nothing but the blood of I see nothing but the blood of Jesus for my cleansing this my plea nothing but the blood of Jesus don't precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no but the blood of Jesus This is all my hope and peace Nothing but the blood of Jesus This is all my righteousness but the blood of Jesus Don't precious is the flow That makes me white as snow No other fountain known Nothing but the blood of Jesus Don't precious is the flow that makes me white as snow no other fountain know nothing but the blood of mention a quick announcement before we close. Uh, next week is the State of the Communion Address. If you're fairly new around here, you won't know what that is. It's like the State of the Union Address, but better, <laughs> hopefully. Um, once a year, we do a kind of a wrap-up, looking back at where we've been in the last year. So we, we call that section of it uh, bragging on God. Um, it's kind of bragging on the church, but since God does all this, uh, any fruit that's there is from him, and so it's bragging on him. We list some things we're excited about in the past uh, year, and then we look ahead to the future, some things you may not know about. Uh, I guarantee you there's some things you don't know about, uh, some things we're planning for the next year, uh, some, some big things, like missions things, strategy things, some vision casting things, um, and then we'll root that in the Bible and, and you know, also have a message part of it. Uh, of course. And um, so one thing we're doing a little bit differently this year is you heard from Carolyn already. Next week, we're also having prayer emphasis week, same time, same, uh, it's purposeful that it's meeting on the same week. So during the state of the communion, um, during one of those services, we'd encourage you to go pray here at the church. So during one of the services, you pray. You come to one of the services, either one, and then you pray during the other service. You can see in your bulletin, there are two different places depending on which service you're doing. One's West Wing, the other one's uh, conference room. So take a look at that. Plan on coming to both services next week if you can. Uh, and praying for one of the services, you'll be, it's not, it's not a prayer marathon where you just, you know, put down in a chair and someone says, pray. And you go, oh, I don't know, okay. Uh, you're given a, a guide and, and um, you're encouraged to pray through some topics 
Um, but a great time for church, the church family thing. Another thing you probably heard about that we're doing new this year is uh, the Wednesday after that Sunday. It's a Lord's Supper week, and so we're doing a special Q&A with the elders during that Lord's Supper. What that is is like this. If you went through the membership class anytime recently, the last several years, you know that the last week of the membership class, it's a Q&A with the elders, kind of open topic with the elders. And we've been thinking, you know what, it's a shame that that stops when the membership class is over. So what we think we should do is maybe once a year have kind of a, an open Q&A with the elders. It won't be open mic just for convenience sake and uh, expedience sake so we can get you home in a decent time. So we're encouraging you to write in some uh, questions through email. And what I'll do is kind of look at them and then systematize them, you know, look at categories. And then I'll, I'll uh, MC it and ask the elders various questions about, you know, budget or, you know, just the things that would come up at the end of our membership class. Um, some doctrine questions, uh, you know, what about that land on the other side of the building there? What's that for? And, you know, do we own it? And what are we going to do with it? And all that kind of stuff. Um, so... If you have a question, we may not be able to get to it. Hopefully we will. Please shoot it to us. We'll respond to it either way, even if we don't mention it, uh, even if we don't, we're not able to get to it at the, the Lord's Supper Q&A. But hopefully it'll be a great time to come together as a family, have kind of a, a get-together of just chatting about who we are, what we're about, where we're going, uh, what we think's important, and, and that sort of stuff. So I um, hope you'll be praying about those important things for us as we... Think about the, the past and the future. If you're visiting with us, we'd love to get to know you. So uh, Carolyn mentioned the visitor's kiosk that's out in the foyer. There are also people up front with name tags on. So if you're visiting or you want to pray with someone uh, or you want to talk more about the message or uh, you have some counseling needs, people are up front that can help you with that. We'd love to visit with you. Otherwise, say hi to someone around you you don't know and have a great Lord's Day. You're dismissed. <laughs>